You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Magdal, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at Locked On WBB. You can like us on Facebook or make sure you go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Uh, I am joined today by the great Doug Feinberg, who covers women's basketball for the Associated Press. If there's a game of import that you're watching, you can be pretty sure he's there. And more important, Doug, you had some really, I would say, significant observations about ACC mascots this weekend. Um, First of all, thanks for being on the program. Second of all, can you talk about uh, how important that is in terms of your total journalistic profile at this point? (laughs) Well, thanks, Howard, for having me again. Um, And, you know, you always have to keep your eye out. Mascots, halftime acts, things that that are... they're for fan entertainment. That's their biggest purpose. Besides what goes on between the lines uh, during games, you want to have entertainment for the fans. And so true. the mascots that the ACC did a wonderful job this weekend entertaining the fans with their dancing, their antics, their uh, pie throwing, sort of, so to speak, when they hit a fan in, in the face with a pie by accident. Um, <laughs> which, which mascot did that? Uh, it was the Duke mascot. It was somebody's uh, birthday, one of those little gag things. I'm guessing it might have been an ACC employee, the mascot hit in the face, but entertaining time had by all. So, if, yeah, you, if you're picking, I, I, I know you shy away from analytics sometimes, but if you're picking largest value over replacement mascot, do you go with the Duke Blue Devil, or, or did somebody else catch your eye this weekend? I mean, I don't want to alienate any of your listeners, but uh, I, I do understand the, the Virginia Tech Hokey. It, it, it's a <laughs> wonderful mascot, but if you don't, if you just walk in a room and have a lineup, there's no, there's nothing on the mascot that tells you it's a Virginia Tech. Hmm. I mean, they're probably the only Hokey in the country, I think, mascot-wise. But all the other ACC mascots had a team jersey, had some way you knew that that's the mascot of that school. If you don't know what a Hokey is, you probably wouldn't know that the Virginia Tech mascot is who it was. Hmm. Well, that, that's a problem, and obviously it's great to see Virginia Tech have the season that they had, especially early on this year on the court, but sounds like the program has more work to do, so I'm glad you're on top of that. In yeah. terms of players, which I guess we should get to as well, uh, I was struck, it was interesting to me to see Shaquayla Thomas uh, named as uh, the coach's player of the year in the ACC. A terrific season for her uh, out of Florida State, no question about it. For me, I think the best player in that conference this year was Asia Durr of Louisville. Uh, I thought Lexi Brown also had a terrific argument. What were your thoughts about it, and who did you see as the top player of players, not only this weekend, but throughout the year with the ACC? You know, it's funny. Like You usually look for the best player on the best team, and that's mm-hmm. how you decide who the player of the year is, I would think. But you do that, you look at Notre Dame, and I'll tell you, we had the same conundrum for the for the postseason tournament, who to pick as MVP, because they have so many options. Yeah. I mean, just starting with them, they have Brianna Turner, they have um, Marina Mabry, they had Lindsey Allen, who was the MVP, uh, they have Arika Ngumbawale, who was obviously very good. So, I mean, that's four players right there that could all have been uh, considered candidates for Player of the Year for that conference. Um, then, as you said, throwing Asia Durr, Lexi Brown... Kayla Thomas, um, I'm sure there are a few others. So it's who do you pick? Um, I tend to go for maybe best player on best team in a, in a conference like that, but when you can't pick one, maybe go to the next one. And I thought 
Lexi Brown had an unbelievable season for Duke. Um, they they kind of it's weird flew under the radar. I mean, they yeah. finished the season um, second in the ACC in the tournament. They're ninth in the AP poll now, and I got to think there aren't many people out there who thought that Duke would be where they were mm-hmm. to finish as high as they did with what they lost to transfers and just the the problems that program was having coming into the season. So to have Lexi Brown do what she did in her first year there to me was pretty special. Yeah, no, no question about it. And in terms of what Duke is overall, do you see this as a team that can and perhaps should make a deep run in the NCAA tournament? Obviously, everything's based on matchups and where teams end up, but I just mean in the abstract. Yeah, I think, you know what, defense wins games, and they play very good defense. They held um, Syracuse, who was a, a, obviously a very, very good offensive team. Yeah. I think it was like 27 or 29 percent shooting in their matchup. Yeah, Alexis played, Peterson was something like four for 21 from the field, which nobody, frankly, has stopped her all year. Right. So I mean, if they play a matchup zone defense, and Syracuse couldn't solve it, and then in the semifinal game against Miami, they held them to I think 37 percent shooting, which mm-hmm. is which is on the low end for women's basketball. So. They they played well, and then Notre Dame solved it, and, and they shot about 50% or 52%. But for the most part, defense wins games for you in the, in the NCAA tournament the more you advance. And they also have some offensive players, too, with Rebecca Greenwell and, and Lexi Brown and, and um, a couple other players that are coming on. Liana uh, Odom had a wonderful uh, tournament for them down in, in Conway, South Carolina. But they have some offense to go with that defense, and I think they could they could make a run in the tournament. How deep, I'm not sure, as, as, it, I mean, as you put it out well, that – it depends how the bracket comes out. But they could win a couple games and definitely be a Sweet 16 and beyond team if they get the right draw. Yeah, no question. And as far as defensive points per possession, they were sixth in the country. So a really elite defense, like you said, and a lot of players who can score the ball, shoot the three. But Notre Dame solved them, and Notre Dame seems to be solving everyone lately. And it's funny, we, we talked back in January, and it seemed like there was a gap between how Notre Dame was perceived and the Notre Dame game-in, game-out performances. And it doesn't seem like it's that way anymore, and obviously that's a full year of Muffet-McGraw and doing what she does best. But what do you see as some of the primary differences, and is Notre Dame now as good as their reputation has been throughout the year? I think they have their swagger back. They've lost a lot of uh, key players, maybe not the most talented to graduation, but they lost key cogs to their system. And I think it took a little while for the players now to sort of fill their roles and step up and, and know what's expected of them to to play well. I mean, Brianna Turner, when she doesn't get in foul trouble, is one of the best players in the country. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big thing. And, and some of the big games, she got in foul trouble early, and that took her out of her game. She couldn't be as aggressive as she would want her to be on the offensive and defensive ends. Um, and, and they just they, they seem to have grown as the season grew. I mean, we all saw them early. Sort of the first real test was the UConn game. Um, and they they failed that one. It was like, oh, they're not Notre Dame. They're not they're not as good as they've been in the past. What's going on here? But it takes time to fill to fill new roles. I mean, they have players that are sophomores now that make that leap with uh, Mabry, and I believe Arike uh, is also a sophomore. So they they've learned to fill their roles a little bit better and, and have flourished lately. I, mean, I think they've won um, their last probably dozen games or so, if not more, and, and are just playing well and have that confidence. And you know what? It starts with Lindsey Allen, the, the senior point guard, who was. Unbelievable this past weekend. She had 33 assists. She had uh, 13 in the title game, which is her career best, her master career best. So th- that's that's where it starts. It starts with the point guard, and it, it, it filters out from there, and, and they've done a really, really good job 
the last month and a half of the season to get back to where people expect them to be and are ready for the NCAA tournament to start next week. You know, it's interesting. Muffet has talked about Lindsay Allen as the best point guard in the country, and it's one of these things that it feels like she's tried to speak it into existence, and then it felt like this past weekend at the ACC tournament, Lindsay Allen made good on that promise from her coach. But I remember even Notre Dame losing to NC State early on this year and seemed like a real blip for them and as it turned out NC State was a lot better I think than a lot of people gave them credit for so as far as Notre Dame and a final four bid do you think anything short of that is a disappointment given that they're certainly going to come in as a number one seed and given Muffet's uh, past experiences as well well consider they didn't make the final four last year um, they got knocked out before then if I remember correctly yeah. in a lot of games team, but I'm pretty sure they weren't there Yep. It, it, it's it, it's I would say it's it's disappointing if they don't make it back again. Um, they had definitely have the talent to do it. And, and look, as we said before, it's all about how the bracket comes out. But yeah. they should be a one seed. Um, they'll play the first two games at home, obviously, um, in the NCAA tournament. I would be surprised if they don't make it to the Final Four. And I would say disappointment would probably be there for them if they if they don't get back to the to Dallas or to Dallas in in the end of March, early April. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say it's a disappointing season for the Irish if they can't advance that far this year again. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of the travel that you do, uh, coming back from South Carolina, you didn't rest. You went right on up to Albany and got to see one of the NCAA tournament field as well in Quinnipiac went out and won. Something that's striking for me about Quinnipiac is that, yes, we talked about Duke being sixth in terms of defensive points per possession nationally. Quinnipiac is actually third in the country. What you saw in person, does that dovetail with that stat? And what were your thoughts about uh, see, about what Quinnipiac was able to accomplish? Well, it's funny, Howard. You said to open this thing how I'm at almost all the big games that matter out there, mm-hmm. the ones on the East Coast. And I had to decide last night to whether to go watch UConn play South Florida or go watch Quinnipiac play Ryder. <laughs> and I think we both knew how the UConn game was going to end. Maybe not as big or as special as Katie Lewis Hamilton had last night. We had a suspicion, yes. We had a feeling that was going to go that way. And it's always nice to, for me to see teams that are playing for a chance to make the NCAA tournament. If they don't win, they're not going to get in. And that's why I chose the, the MAC championship game uh, on Monday night. And also, I know we're talking Quinnipiac, but Ryder was such a great story. I mean, they finished last in the conference last year, mm-hmm. were picked 10th of 11 to finish this year in the preseason poll, and yet here they were, number two in the conference, and had a chance to get to the NCAA tournament. And that's uh, without their best player, who was player of the year. So. Right, and so I was going to say, so so why was that? What, what allowed them to succeed as well as they did, you know, despite missing their best player? They just, I mean, they have a great system. They had a couple senior leaders who, who played really well for them. Uh, just Duggan had a great game. She had 23 yesterday. I mean, they were down, Ryder was down 15 with four and a half minutes left. And figured, okay, the season's coming to an end. They cut it to a, a four-point game with about under a minute to play. So they had a chance to actually tie it or, or, or go ahead if they had a couple other things, balls bounced their way. So they just had a, a talented system, a good group of seniors, and, and they're going to keep playing. They're in the WNIT mm-hmm. um, tournament. So they don't get that large the NCAAs, which I don't think is happening. But... They, they were fun to watch, and it was it was a, a disappointing end to their season, but really a phenomenal season by Ryder. And they lost to a very good team in Quinnipiac. As you said, the, the defensive numbers are there. That's something that their coach, uh, Trisha Frebri, told me before the game, that they're much better defensively now than they've been in the last couple of years, hmm. that they focus better on defense. They have better athletes now just because 
the, the success they've had, they're able to recruit a different kid or maybe a, a little bit better uh, athlete to help them become a better defensive team. And that that's the difference. I mean, everyone remembers probably a couple years back they were the five-in, five-out hockey-style sub uh, pattern when they mm-hmm. first made the NCAA tournament four or five years ago. She doesn't have to do that anymore. She can play seven, eight players and get them in rotation and play pretty good defense. I mean, it was a higher-scoring game than you would think last night. I forget if the final was, um, I think it was in the 70s or 80s, but it, it was something where they can play defense now and lock teams down, which may help them come the NCAA tournament to get the right uh, seed. You know, what's interesting is that they are, per Charlie Cream's bracketology, a 13 right now, which is not typically what you see out of the MAC, but they, they have some quality wins. I mean, they won at Dayton. It was a very good team that won the Atlantic 10. They managed to go and win at New Mexico State. They won at Long Beach State. Actually played Michigan State pretty tough. Uh, Temple as well. It was a three-point loss. So not a team that's been untested. And like you said, that defense that keeps them in games reminds me a lot of one of the biggest upsets out of last year, which was Albany going out as a 12 and winning a first-round game against number five, Florida. Do you think it likely that Quinnipiac at least is right there with whatever team they end up with if they are a 13 playing one of these fours? Because if you're playing a four, you're playing probably at, or certainly playing at somebody's home floor. Yeah, that's that's a huge thing. I mean, I was actually asked this last night on social media whether they had a chance to be, where they were going to be seated. And I said, they really want to be a 12. I mean, that's what you're shooting for. So you have a neutral site first-round game as opposed to playing on somebody's home floor. And that makes a big difference. I mean, usually the fans at, at these places tend to get behind the underdog <laughs> in the NCAA tournament. So if you're a 12 seed and you're playing a 5 on the opponent's home floor, odds are those fans that are there that are neutral fans are going to start cheering for you because, A, they don't want to have their own team play the tougher matchup in the 5, but also they like the underdog. So you stay in the game, you have a chance. I mean, it would be great for them to get that 12 as opposed to a 13 or, or 14 potentially. So, yeah, I think if they can do that, they have a very good chance to potentially pull an upset off in the first round. Going to be fascinating. I really hope we get a chance to see it. In terms of teams that are hosting, not hosting, there's a seven seed out there in all likelihood. I'm, I'm curious whether you agree with this or not. Charlie Cream has Stanford as a two. I could see him as a two. I could see him as a three. But whoever is the lower high seed in that group, with Stanford, because Stanford can't host, is going to get the opportunity as a six, as a seven, to be able to host the first two rounds. I'm curious what you think of it, whether you think there's a better solution to that down the line, and what you think is likely to happen as a result. Well, Charlie does a great job for ESPN doing the bracketology. Uh, Let me start by saying that. Um... I I think Tennessee is the, probably the biggest enigma in the NCAA tournament, and I say that because they could win five games, six games, and win the national championship, or they could lose the first round. They've shown that type of talent this year, beating some of the teams they beat. They beat Notre Dame, they beat South Carolina, if I remember correctly. Yep. So they, they beat yeah. each of the top four teams in the SEC. So they show they yeah. can do this. They have the talent to do it. There's no question. Yeah. But they also lost some games they probably shouldn't have based on talent on paper. Like so, a 12 seed to Alabama? Yes. There you go. So it, it's like, where do you seed them? What can they do in the tournament? I, I pick the bracket every year. It's part of my 
fun job I have, I always do a bracket breakdown where I pick all 63 games. Right. And I have no idea. If you could tell me, you could say right now, pencil them or pen them in as a seven seed. I wouldn't know where I'd pick them yeah. to win the to win the game, to lose the game. Put them as a one seed. I wouldn't know what to do with them. So Tennessee is going to be a real conundrum for the for the tournament committee to figure out where to seed them and whoever has to play them. As far as your question about Stanford, wow, that that would not be a a, a fun thing to be Stanford, be it one of the top eight teams in the country in the in the seeds, then have to fly across the country to play at Tennessee, which obviously is one of the most historic and and uh, well-respected venues in college basketball. Right. And then have to beat Tennessee in the second round if they both advance that far on their home court. That That's just an unfair thing to do to them, so to speak. And then I, potentially fly back across country to play in Stockton. Now, that's not where Charlie has them, but right. then you have to fly back to play your next round. So it, Stanford not being able to host definitely makes life more difficult for them and for the committee. I really hope they don't put them against Tennessee in that first that first weekend in, the, in their pod, just because I think that really would be a, an added burden of unfairness to the the Cardinal for really having a wonderful season. The argument I'll make is if it's got to be a seven seed, and we're, we'll take those as the gospel for argument's sake. West Virginia getting that opportunity simply by virtue of going out and winning the Big Twelve tournament. I, I think they're all imperfect solutions. I don't really know what you do about it. I don't think you can really criticize the committee in this situation because they lacked other options. But maybe just a team that went out and beat three, two, one in that Big Twelve tournament day after day after day. Maybe that's the reward. Uh, in, in the sense that a, some seven seed or some six seed is going to get the chance to host in a way they normally wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, first off, how about that run by West Virginia? I mean, beating a three, a two, and a one to to win the Big Twelve title and, and that, crushed Baylor last <laughs> night. I mean, Baylor made a great run late, and you know, in the fourth quarter, and Kalani Brown, who frankly is uh, unstoppable as anyone in the game when she gets going, helped key that return. But they were up twenty in the third quarter. Yeah, that, that was definitely not one that the prognosticators uh, would have predicted to have okay. West Virginia up 20 on Baylor. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, West Virginia's underlying metrics are a little better than their numbers would suggest. They were the sixth seed and had an 8-10 and 10 conference record in the SEC, but in the Big 12, excuse me. But at the same time, they were, I think, third best in terms of offensive points per possession and fourth in terms of defensive points per possession. So better than those numbers would indicate. But at the same time, this West Virginia team lost in January to Baylor 91-56. to So it, it is an evolution. It, it just seems like a different West Virginia team than, than they had been. Well, you know what this points out to me, and, and, and Howard, I know you're a big fan of the metrics, and I think you put on Twitter the other night how the old Big East is champions of four of the conferences right now. Right. The... Uh, the ACC, the the Big Twelve, the, the AAC, whoever yeah. wins tonight. Um, but I, I think what this shows for us is that we're excited. We're in for an exciting March. Mm-hmm. I mean, last year there were the upsets. You had teams making like Washington and Syracuse the Final Four that no one really would have expected. And Oregon State had a great season, so they're not as much of an upset to get there. But for those crying for parity, this could be a wide open NCAA tournament. Baylor's probably would have been a one seed, or may still be, or at least a high two. And they lost to West Virginia, who's probably going to be a 7 or an 8 or a 6, somewhere in that range. So there's no locks that, hey, the four number ones or the number ones and number twos, they're going to be in, in Dallas at the end of the month. I mean, it's going to be, I think, wide open that there are probably 15, 20 teams that could make a run 
to the NCAA tournament Final Four. I think that was something that agitated me last year in a lot of the conversation about Connecticut, uh, the uninformed, let's say, conversation about Connecticut that talked about the lack of parity in the women's game because even last year you had first-time Final Four teams. Even last year you had a seven seed in Washington be able to go into College Park of all places, and beat that Maryland team. Uh, that, that to me, was the biggest shock in the entire NCAA tournament, to take nothing away from Kelsey Plum, but that Maryland team that gave Brianna Stewart's UConn team everything they could handle. To see them lose at home was really surprising to me. So this parity, like you point out, is a long time in coming, number one. And number two, I think we're really going to see it this year. Now, that said, we're again talking about a UConn team that is undefeated, a UConn team that certainly didn't look like it was going to be in danger of losing anytime soon last night, although that South Florida team is, that doesn't match up very well with UConn. There are certain things you can do against UConn, as you know, uh, things Florida State did early, some things that Baylor did, certainly things that Maryland did. South Florida is not in a position to do that. Uh, they, they are not the Courtney Williams South Florida team even. So I guess my question for you is, when you look at this group of the elite teams, who is the best bet in your mind to beat UConn this year? Well, let me start off by saying, when I was last on your show, I said there's no way they're going to win 130 games in a row. Yes. No chance they're going to lose a game. And I've gotten grief for that comment from your partner in crime. <laughs> and the great Gabrielle Levine. Yes. Yes. And let me let me phrase that I definitely believe that they could have lost the game this year, and they still might lose the game sure. this year. And they may still go win 130 in a row, 150 in a row, 200 in a row now, the way that they have players coming in and such. Exactly. So it's possible. And we saw, look, we talked about parity. They almost lost to Tulane. Mm-hmm. Tulane played a great game against them where they were had a chance to, to tie it, I believe, at the end of the game. So... They are beatable this year. As crazy as it sounds, and, and the fact that they've won 107 straight games now, wherever the number is, 106, 107, they could lose. But yeah, Maryland was right there. Florida State lost to them by two. Uh, you right. know, there, there's uh, South, South Carolina lost by 11, but South Carolina also didn't play their best game. Neither did Baylor. Exactly. And, and, and that's the thing. Like, in the past couple years, when this whole streak started, it would have taken a uh, Herculean effort to beat UConn. It mm-hmm. would have been a monumental upset to do it. Teams had, had played their best game. UConn had an off game. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that UConn obviously is the favorite to win this whole thing again, but you don't need to have that Herculean effort to do it. Yeah. You need to have a, a really strong effort by yourself, and you need them to maybe have an off night or have foul trouble or have something that you're not expecting, as we saw with Tulane or we saw with... Maryland had a chance when they came back, or Florida State. So it is possible. I mean, look, the way they played last night, you're right. No one's going to beat them if, if Lou hits 10 threes and, and they're on their game. It's going to be tough to do that. <laughs> yes. That, that's true but, for any team. Uh, well, exactly. And, and just to your point, I remember after the Mississippi State game last year, which for my money is the most perfect performance I've seen any team in any sport have, that 98-38 yep. win. And Gino essentially said... If we play our A game, no one can play with us. And I think that was true for that particular UConn team, for the Brianna Stewart, Mariah Jefferson, Morgan Tuck UConn team. They play their A game. It was just a question of how much they were going to win by. I think this team has, and 
again, any team where Kia Nurse, you could make an argument, might be the fourth best on the team. What I think is going to be an easy WNBA lottery pick when the time comes. That is a team stacked with talent. But that is also a team where there are questions you can answer if you're the opponent that you can, can't necessarily counter. And I think we saw that with Maryland. When you have a Bree Jones, who, by the way, was efficient even against Brianna Stewart last year. But Bree Jones is someone who creates a matchup problem for UConn. Destiny Slocum is far more consistent than Crystal, Crystal Dangerfield has been as a freshman, and Sanaya Chan may have some trouble with defensively. So there are teams out there that can create some issues and make for a competitive game. Now, that said, it hasn't happened on the right night. You know, Leslie Vorpal uh, got justifiably her spotlight, her moment in the spotlight when Tulane almost beat Connecticut. But if you had to choose and you were given UConn or the field going into this NCAA tournament, who would you be taking? Well, I'll be honest. The the eight years I've done the bracket breakdown, I picked UConn all eight years. Right. I think it was, and I'm six for eight on winning national championships. Not bad. So I would I would trust. I'm going to probably pick them to win again this year, just because why go against what's worked? Right. Um, so I would probably take uh, UConn against the field if I was a betting man. Um, but I would not feel as confident as I would the last couple of years. I'll phrase it that way, as you've eloquently said. If there are teams out there that can give them trouble, and look, they have a night like that against Tulane, and they're playing a Maryland, a Notre Dame, a South Carolina, a um, Baylor, a Stanford, Oregon State, things could turn out differently than coming away with another victory. They tend to get up for those games, but they, they play as they did that night. They shot like they did that night against Tulane. Things can happen, and they could lose. Yep, no question about it. And it'll be fascinating to see. And look, we're going to rely on you for bracketology this year now that the President of the United States <laughs> no longer does it. So obviously, uh, I, I, anyway, I think of you as my president at this point anyway, Doug. So I think that's uh, probably <laughs> the best way to look at it. Before I let you go, any other team that you think is not getting the publicity they deserve coming into the NCAA tournament, just a, a team or even a player you've seen uh, that should be more in the conversation than they are right now? Gosh, that's a that's a tough question. I mean, teams that fly under the radar, as I said, I mean, I thought Duke was flying under the radar a little bit this year mm-hmm. just because there are so many good teams in the ACC. They'll probably get eight in the NCAA tournament that people weren't really talking about them. I don't think they're going to make a run to the Final Four or beyond, but I think they're a team that could make some noise and such. Um, and, and same thing, I mean, there, there are a bunch of, I think, pretty good teams out there that could do well to make it to the second weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I mean, that's the first goal if you're a team. You want to win, if you're a mid-major team, you want to win a game in the NCAA tournament and then potentially make it to the second weekend. If you're like the fourth, fifth, sixth best team in your conference, making it to the Sweet 16 is always a, a wonderful goal to have. I mean, everyone wants to win a national championship, but realistically, making it to that second weekend is, is a goal that a lot of teams have. Yeah. So, I would think, I mean, a team that has been under the radar, they've been a little bit hot and cold lately, but has the talent to make a nice run, I think it's UCLA. Mm -hmm. That they have the athletes, they have a a wonderful coach, and I think they can make a run to Sweet 16 and beyond. I mean, obviously the the Pac-12 is one of the best conferences, if not the best conference in the country. No question. They're battle-tested. 
And I think they have a chance that they could do something special here if they can get hot at the right time, they get their guards to play well and, and such, that they could make a run to, depending who they had to play against, the Elite Eight, Final Four, you just never know. Jordan Canada and the idea that she could carry a team deep into this tournament seems very possible to me. So that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And I'm actually going to pick DePaul as the team that probably is better than perhaps some people think, only in the sense that Jessica January, not only back, but clearly back and on her game. I want to see tonight, and it would be very interesting, to see DePaul versus Marquette. Marquette's actually 5-0 and against top 25 teams this year and has had DePaul's number, but that's absent Jessica January. DePaul goes out and wins that Big East title. I think they're going to get a chance to host, and I think they're going to have an opportunity, depending on who the one is in their region, to be able to go possibly as far as the Final Four. No, I think you're right. DePaul is a, is a very interesting team. I mean, Look, everyone kind of figures that national coach of the year is going to Geno because of what he did with what everyone expected that team to do this year. But Doug Bruno has done a tremendous job with basically half his team out with injury for most of the season. Yeah. So he, he's done a, a fabulous job. They lost a bunch of games early to some of the top teams. They lost to Notre Dame, uh, Baylor, and UConn, I believe, early in the first month and a half of the season. Right. Those are three really good teams to lose to. And, yes, they got blown out by, by UConn. They, they're like South Florida. They tried to run with them, and you just can't do that against the UConn team. And Doug's not going to change his style to just play UConn in the regular season. But what he's done with that program to miss January for about, about a month and a half, two months, and still win the Big East title and have a chance to win the Big East tournament and, and even host one of the first uh, two weekends or the first weekend of the NCAA tournament, that's a great job by Doug Bruno there to, to actually – get a team to play and not just be a one-trick pony with, with January and have a lot of talented players on his squad that stepped up at the right time to get them to still be successful. Yeah, Doug's a great choice for that award. Gino is always a great choice for that award, quite frankly. And I would put uh, Scott Ruick into the conversation just yep. when you look at that Oregon State team not missing a beat. Uh, you know, losing Ruth Hamblin, losing Jamie Weisner, that, that is the type of loss that you don't typically see teams rebound from as quickly as that Oregon State team has. And that, that is a dangerous team. I, I still think in a non-UConn year, that Oregon State team would have been a favorite to win the national title last year. And he's got them right back in the conversation as well. Definitely. And you mentioned before about the players you may be missing nationally or player of the year in the ACC. How about player of the year nationally? I mean, obviously everyone knows Kelsey Plum. She had a phenomenal career so far and a wonderful season. I mean, putting up 57 to, to break the all-time scoring record at home on senior night, you can't write that if you're a Hollywood script writer any better yeah. than, than what happened. But that's the thing we were talking before about how there might be too many players on one team that split votes. Like, who do you vote from UConn? I mean, Samuelson's great, Collier's great. Uh, Williams is great. That's three people right there who could all potentially be player of the year, but they might split the votes. Those three, Plum, you have the ACC people, you have people from other conferences. I mean, it's it's more wide open than I can remember in a long time whether you come into a season and somebody's basically anointed player of the year, it's theirs to lose. This year I think it's more wide open that there are a bunch of players coming into the season who could win it, and we'll see who actually stepped up enough to get voters to vote for them come the awards being announced the next month or so. And so to me, I think I agree with you. And I think that is, by the way, the gift when people talked about the effect that UConn was having on women's basketball. 
I think it's clear the effect that UConn has had on women's basketball, which is precisely the effect that UCLA had on men's basketball, and that is it set a higher standard, it led to more players getting more opportunities, uh, and elevated the ceiling for what women's basketball could be, and so as a result, we're seeing more elite teams, more good players at the top. All of that said, I think when you have the nation's scoring leader, essentially a stone's throw, free throw percentage-wise, away from a 50-40-90 season, I think it's got to be Kelsey Plum. I think when you look at what she's been able to do offensively, it's something no one has ever been able to do before. And so that combination of scoring and efficiency, I think it's got to be her. Yeah, and that's a very good argument. And, and I don't think anyone would say if she wins it, wow, I can't believe she won the award. True. I mean, she she has had a phenomenal season, a record season, and there's there are probably enough positive adjectives to say about her. And I'm sure Mike Neighbors is not going to be happy next year when she's gone. Got to figure <laughs> out how they're going to get points in the basket. But she she has been she's been phenomenal. She probably is the front runner for most of these major awards. I would think. Yeah, I would think so, too. Listen, uh, another Mike Neighbors recruit that uh, almost was, and Kelsey Mitchell certainly should be in that conversation as well. <laughs> but that's another story for another time. Well, Doug, appreciate having you on the show always. Do you know yet where you're going to be next week, or is that still up in the air? And we're, you're Essentially, how far you go in the tournament is based on uh, the brackets as well. Well, I can I'll almost guarantee 99% no bracketology necessary. I will be in the New York office for the opening weekend. Just Fair enough. It's easier for me to see all the games yes. from that opening weekend to be in one place in New York where we have a, a bunch of TVs and such that I can watch from there and, and give assists when needed. And then I'll be up in Bridgeport for the regional where I would expect the uh, UConn Huskies to be uh, that second weekend. Excellent. So in the office in New York, the first round and second round, in Bridgeport for the regional, and then down in Dallas for the Final Four. Very nice. Well, I'll be seeing you in Bridgeport and Dallas, although I will actually be down in College Park for uh, University of Maryland first two rounds. So it should be a very interesting few weeks. And so, Doug Feinberg, thank you so much as always, and thank you to our listeners. A reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook, LockedOnWomen'sBasketball, or go ahead and Rate and review us on iTunes, your podcast listen of choice. I'm Howard Megdahl, wishing you a wonderful day.